0: Last time. In the 70s, Lester Eubanks sat on death row, convicted of murdering a 14-year-old girl.
1: My father knew that he was guilty, and, and, and Lester knew that he was guilty.
0: Then one day, in the span of hours, Lester went from prison inmate to wanted man. It just emboldened him to believe, I'll never be caught. and And he says, all you got to do is smile. What police didn't know was that their fugitive had taken a bus across the country and started from scratch in Southern California with a brand-new identity. I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? Lester Eubanks had a new name and a new home, a fishing license as his ID, and a 10-speed bicycle as his transportation. It took some effort for authorities and our team to retrace his first days of freedom. For that, we find senior investigative reporter Matthew Mosk and ABC News investigative chief Cindy Galley climbing into a dusty attic in the New Mexico desert. Oh, wow, a lot of
2: space. Cindy and I found ourselves rooting around a cavernous warehouse attic in one of the most desolate spots in New Mexico. This is fun. It was like a scene out of American Pickers or Antiques Roadshow. All around us were boxes and crates and file cabinets stacked on wooden pallets. This
3: is like a It really is. You can look at the size of some of those file
2: cabinets. We were hunting for evidence left behind from Lester's life in L.A. With one of the first people to hire Lester after he arrived there in 1974, just months after his escape. She's a street-smart woman with wavy white hair and a big laugh. Joy Springer. Joy moved here decades ago to escape the bustle of L.A. But back in the 70s, she was living and working in a section of Los Angeles called Gardena, which isn't far from LAX. She was a manager at Quality Quilters, a factory that made mattresses and waterbeds. About 50 people built the furniture from scratch on a cement production floor. Joy did the books and the hiring. One day, a muscular man in a tank top with no socks and little black slip-on shoes sauntered in looking for work.
3: It was right in the beginning of the waterbed era, and we were going big guns.
2: You had a heartbeat, we'd hire you, and... It should work. We run in two shifts. The man said his name was Victor. He went by Vic. At the time, no one was looking very hard for Lester. Initially, Mansfield police knew he was headed to the Los Angeles home of a relative named Kay Banks. The FBI had searched Kay's house almost immediately, but they showed up too soon. Lester was still on a cross-country bus. An FBI agent from that time told me the L.A. office was large and busy, and without new tips coming in, the case would have soon been labeled pending, inactive. Back in Ohio, it seemed everyone forgot about Lester. His case was so inactive, we could find very little record of police activity for well over a decade. Hearing nothing, some people in Mansfield assumed he had been caught and was back in jail. James Banks, an Ohio civil rights attorney who knew Lester's father, told me and my colleague, Alex Hosenball, that he thought there was an obvious reason the manhunt was lackluster. Do you think if the the victim was black, wasn't she? Yes. Yes. Okay, do you think if she'd been white that it would have been lost? Don't you, I mean, do you think if she had been white, I'll put the question back to you. There would be dogs. There would be helicopters. Oh, they'd be out there.
4: Yeah, they would have never rested. They'd still be out there today. <laughs> you
2: know, if he... But there were police in town who had not forgotten about the middle school girl who was murdered, Mary Ellen Diener. In the early 1990s, the National Criminal Information Center, where crime data is shared around the country, was upgrading its computers John Arcudi, a retired Mansfield police detective, remembers the day in 1993 when he was asked to go check and see if Lester's escape warrant was still posted.
5: We checked the computer to make sure that he was entered as a wanted fugitive, and he wasn't even entered in the computer as an escaped felon, uh, a federal fugitive, any type of uh, crime that he was wanted for in the National Law Enforcement Database. Therefore, suppose he gets stopped for speeding or or whatever, he could give him, give the police his real name, and when they run him through the computer, he's gonna come back fine, that uh, there's no wants or warrants on him.
2: Arcudi reopened the search for Lester he began to track all the numbers Lester's father, Mose Eubanks, was dialing. So if Mose called a number in San Antonio, Arcudi would ask local police to identify the recipient. Arcudi would then fax over copies of Lester's file, always making sure to note the distinctive scar Lester had on his upper right arm, a long, fleshy slash. Mose dialed the phone, Arcudi's fax would go out to Fort Wayne, Indiana, Muskogee, Oklahoma, Vancouver, British Columbia. In those days, Arcudi lived at the fax machine. But then he thought of a more efficient approach. You know, we talked about it
5: and we decided, well, let's do something. Let's, let's get hold of America's Most Wanted and uh, have him do a, a segment on him.
2: Enter John Walsh.
6: It seems hard to imagine, but less than 30 years ago, the murder of a young girl was a rare crime in this country.
2: On September 10th, 1994, the intense, no-nonsense host of The True Crime Show aired a segment on Lester's case. But
6: what happened that night shocked the whole town.
2: Reenacting the crime and reigniting the manhunt.
6: And the nightmare continues
2: to this day for Mary Ellen's family.
6: This summer, the gathered
2: time. And the tips came pouring in? I mean, what was the reaction to the show?
5: Overwhelming. Uh, the first time it was on America's Most Wanted, I think we, we ended up with over 100 tips that came in. And one of those tips was very fruitful.
2: It came from a woman in Florida. She knew him. She knew him in California. The woman called the tip line to say her ex-husband had socialized with Lester in Los Angeles in the 1970s. She was the first person to tell police Lester had, all this time, been living with Kay Banks. Arcudi followed up with the woman's ex-husband, and he not only confirmed the story but also heard about Lester's life in L.A. The man said Lester mostly hustled, making a living playing cards, gambling, and leeching off women. And he remembered Lester was using a name, Victor. The call was a break, a big break. And our cootie immediately reached out to the Los Angeles Police Department's fugitive squad. Cindy and I got on the phone with Tim Connor, who used to be a member of the squad. Now he's the police chief in a town near Dallas. We wanted to record this, if that's okay, so we had a record of everything. Is that all right with you? Yeah, that's fine. Just, uh, Just bear with me. Remember, it's been over 20 years, so chief connor said la was a popular destination for fugitives
1: uh, it was fairly sizable um that we had a lot of people think that they could come and a lot of them did uh come to a city of millions and just become an anonymous person and and hide you know amongst the millions and and many did uh they were on the run and they knew that it was a place where they could come where you know they could blend in and the the weather would be nice, and, and they, could, uh, they could try their hand in a new place um, to avoid capture or avoid uh, sentencing or avoid any number of things.
2: But joining a manhunt 20 years after the prisoner had escaped, that presented some unique challenges.
1: So uh, he had a sizable and considerable head start uh, on attempts to locate him, and Lester was not a stupid man. Uh, he knew uh, he knew how to stay low, he knew how to avoid contact he knew how to not bring attention to himself and uh, and so he was very successful in the Los Angeles area and I say
2: the area- still their investigation quickly began to pick up Lester's footprints. The detectives made their first contact with Kay banks. She told police Lester turned up at her front door out of the blue. She remembered the moment he arrived, when he moved in close to her, whispering his new name. My name is Victor, he said. My name's Victor Young. Los Angeles, a place people went to reinvent themselves. At first, for Victor, it wasn't glamorous. Each morning, he would ride his 10-speed bike to work in Gardena, about four miles away from Kay's house. Joy Springer remembers those summers. It was hot in the waterbed factory, with no air conditioning, and he and the other men worked long days with their shirts off. When it rained, she would give him a lift in her Toyota Celica. She never knew exactly where he lived. At his request, she would always drop him at the curb. And when he was in the car, they would sit quietly with the
3: radio on. My recollection, he didn't really say all that much, I don't think. Um, He wore a lot of cologne, and it would give me a migraine. It would give me a headache, so it was always like, okay, put the window down.
2: Victor was quiet and blended in at the warehouse.
3: You know, he came into work every day, neat, clean. He was on time. I mean, those are things that were important to me in an employee. Neat, clean, on time, and be there. And he was. And he was pretty accurate and
2: able to comprehend and pull the orders. Initially, when she saw the America's Most Wanted episode, Joy wanted to double-check her old photo albums. And she realized something. Because my business, one of my business partners, she took
3: pictures of everybody, everything, and he was not in any of them. Not one. We would take the whole crew to lunch at Shakey's Pizza. Uh, He was never in any of the pictures. We would do a monthly birthday party, pinatas, cake. I mean, believe me, we, we had a lot of fun. He was never in one of those pictures, ever.
2: Victor never left a mark, except when he was filing shipping forms and doing paperwork. Then Victor had an unusual habit. He wrote his name on clipboards. He wrote his name on file cabinet drawers, file folders, um, trays. In black marker, with fancy script he scrawled his signature on everything. Much later, she realized it wasn't idle doodling. He was practicing his new name.
3: Is there on anything the, on there? On the, on the clip, on
2: the clip. It's those clipboards that took us up into the attic at Joy's offices in New Mexico. She was sure they were there somewhere. I
3: don't know where it got put back. to. old wooden, brown wooden one, not these plastic clipboards that have
2: now. As we searched, Joy told us Lester only spent a year or two at the waterbed factory, but he stayed in Los Angeles. Police tracked him to a different job as a hospital custodian, a position he apparently held for years. But the hospital has been sold multiple times since then, and records are scarce. Lester also found an apartment during that time in South Central, a tough part of town that later erupted into civil unrest in 1992. Police Chief Tim Connor said L.A.'s uneasy racial history and the long-standing distrust of the police all worked in Lester's favor.
1: It was difficult to get people to want to talk. This is 1994 in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, We had just come off of some really significant unrest in the years prior. Um, There were still some tensions in the
2: community, and folks were nervous about cooperating. Um, If there's a common thread to the hunt for Lester, it's that most people around him were content letting his ugly past stay in the past. It's something we encountered again and again. You could sense this in Lester's old neighborhood. Across the street from his old apartment at a liquor store, I spoke to a man named Rodney. He's lived in this neighborhood for close to 50 years. I showed him Lester's photo. Have you seen this guy? Mm. This guy looked familiar to you. Have you seen this guy? We talked... And Rodney told me he didn't recognize Lester. He agreed to hang on to the picture and call me if he heard more. And then he added something revealing about the area where Lester had chosen to hide successfully for probably close to 20 years. He said I should stop asking people if they had seen that man.
5: Give you a little word of advice,
6: don't go anywhere else out here looking for doing that.
2: No. Nobody wants to talk about that stuff. I'm just being honest with you. You ain't going to find nobody. Perhaps understandably, the people in Lester's social circle from that time, those who are still alive, are equally guarded. One of them, Nevin Jones, tried to shoo me off his driveway when I went to see him at his house in Long Beach. Sir, I'm going to say this once. Sure. I'm going to walk you to the curb and I'm going to ask you to leave. Absolutely, sir. Another close friend of Lester's, a doo-wop singer named Pete Odin, has passed away. But his two adult children both told us they didn't want to dredge up the past. Here's one of them, Brian Odin. I don't have time, really. And I really don't have any information or anything to say, you know. That was a long time ago. Police did begin to get a picture of Lester's free-spirited social circle, including several friends from Ohio who were trying to break through in the burgeoning music industry. They said Lester's family ties to the Motown singer Daryl Banks would have helped him move comfortably in these circles. One of the early tipsters told police that Lester, now going by the name Victor, even began hanging out with the durable Hall of Fame music group Earth, Wind & Fire, and with Maurice White, the band's legendary frontman. We were curious about this, but if members of the band knew something, they weren't talking either. Maurice died a few years ago. His brother Verdeen wouldn't talk to us. His publicist saying simply, he did not wish to participate in this story. We even tried to speak to Verdeen directly, before a recent concert in California. But his tour manager said he wouldn't come out and see us. He didn't need the distraction. Intriguing details about Lester's life in Los Angeles trickled into police over the next few years, but never quite enough of them. The best lead they had was Kay Banks, the woman Lester stayed with after his escape. Kay told police that by the time they came knocking at her door in 1994, Lester had already fled. She said he had become controlling and eventually, she made up a story saying she'd received a call from the FBI so he would leave. Chief Tim Connor always wondered if she was telling them everything she knew.
7: I, I think we got most of what she knew, I don't think we got all of what she knew. Um, I
2: he said he believes Kay remained in close contact with Lester's father, among others.
7: I think in the end, she was far more afraid of him than she was of us. Huh. And that if, she, if it had ever come to light that she had uh, crossed him, although he may have been rolled back into custody and back in the, in prison where he belongs. Yeah. Um, his father was still alive at that time. You know, I don't want to speak ill of the guy, except that I think that he was, uh, he was very involved in Lester's ability to stay a fugitive. And I, and I do firmly believe that had Kay, uh, crossed the family, um, that she, She rightfully feared the retribution that that probably would have come her way.
2: Kay Banks passed away a few years ago. There are old photos of her posted on one of her children's social media accounts that show her from the time. Young, her hair done up, in sunglasses and a go-go dress, marveling at the L.A. palm trees. And there are more recent photos in the years before she passed, with white hair in a yellow cardigan sweater and a grandchild on her lap. Forty years is a long time. The decades can also be measured by the thick layer of dust in Joy's attic back in New Mexico. A lifetime of relics are packed in boxes, hundreds of them stretched across a space the size of an airport hangar, in the end, our hunt for the clipboards and folders with Vic Young's signature was a bit like the search for Lester himself. You know he's there, but until you look in the right spot, he remains just out of reach. Tim Connor has never quite gotten over it.
7: This guy has, this guy has been so lucky his entire is the entire time he has either been helped or or propped up or provided for or covered for or just been had blind luck for this whole time it's unbelievable
0: while most of the people who knew lester as victor young have remained silent the one who may have known lester the best during this time was a man he treated like a son When we come back, we join the U.S. Marshals as they try and find the man Lester raised as his own.
1: Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games.
3: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And
0: I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
5: The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's
8: a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
5: For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
2: When the U.S. Marshals jump-started their hunt for Lester Eubanks two years ago, they focused a good portion of their effort in the last place they knew he'd been living, Los Angeles. And while Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler oversaw the manhunt from Ohio, he began speaking almost daily to a deputy in the Marshal's South L.A. office, Craig McCluskey. I met McCluskey at a coffee shop across the street from his office in the Santa Ana Federal Courthouse, and we sat outside on a patio.
6: Well, obviously, this case has a lot of, uh, it has a lot of California ties just because this is where, you know, he was known to have fled after, after he took off. Yeah,
2: As McCluskey interviewed the aging group of friends from Lester's social circle, he began to hear about an important figure in Lester's life in L.A., someone they didn't know a lot about. When Kay Banks had welcomed this fugitive into her home in the early 70s, she was not alone. She had a teenage son, Daryl Banks Jr. One woman told McCluskey that while Daryl was technically a cousin he became like a son to Lester.
6: She described Lester as being very close to Daryl. I remember him kind of raising him as if he was his own. Uh,
2: The more interviews McCluskey did, the more important he felt Daryl was to locating Lester. He thought there was a chance they had remained in touch. But was there a point where you think that Lester may have been sheltered by Daryl? Absolutely. I mean, I
6: can't prove that, but... This is a hunter... It's based on... The, the handful of interviews we've done with everybody in that circle. It's not one person saying, yeah, Daryl and Lester were close. It's several people saying. Um, so based on that totality, I mean, you, you got you got all these close adopted aunts saying, yeah, Daryl and Lester, Daryl and Lester. I mean, there, there has to be a tight bond there. And that, those bonds just don't go away. Yeah,
2: but of course, McCluskey wanted very badly to talk with Daryl. At this point... Daryl was in his 50s and had been working for years as an architect in Asia. In the summer of 2017, though, he had temporarily returned to Los Angeles for a big new assignment. And it happened he had been staying in a house nearby.
6: And so when we first start, you know, exploring the neighborhood where he lived, trying to you know set up and do some surveillance, you know, everything that you know he would do, trying to track somebody down. Um, we contacted a few neighbors, and the, all the neighbors, you know, they had nice manicured yards, uh, they had curtains on their windows, and then, you know, then there's Daryl's house. There's foil on the window, the, the, the blinds were shut, everything was locked down. Um, you couldn't see, you know, through an inch of window in the house. I mean, it was just it was just buttoned up. And, uh,
2: he even wondered if it was possible Lester was there with Daryl.
6: So we were careful in our approach, you know, because if Lester was in there, we weren't just going to, you know, burn it to the ground and knock on the door and, you know, right. get denied entry, and then, you know, then boom, Lester's gone. Right. So we did, we did a few days of surveillance, um, but it turned out that he, Daryl, had already moved out at that point. You know, he oh, already kidding. left and gone back to Vietnam. So we, again, we missed him by a, about a week, just, just like the.
2: After talking with McCluskey, I began my own effort to speak with Daryl. I found him on social media, and in April, we began messaging on WhatsApp. He was in Vietnam, designing elaborate public spaces for hotels and casinos. It took months to arrange for an interview, but eventually, Daryl agreed to one. We had a producer in Vietnam go to his house to help facilitate the call while I was back in the States. I spent a long time talking to him because I wanted to find out whether he could give us real insights into what Lester was like during that period. Maybe he could tell me something that would be the key to finding Lester. All right, are we ready to go? Daryl, you good? Can yeah. you hear me? all good. Great. So actually, maybe even before we start, tell me where you are. Where are we, where are we reaching you?
4: Um, I'm actually in uh, Ho Chi Minh, uh, uh, Vietnam, in District 2, okay. a place called Tao Den.
2: I wanted to talk with Daryl about Lester, but I was also curious to get a sense of his own father, the Motown singer, who separated from his mom and then was shot and killed in 1970 when Daryl Jr. was just 10 years old. And you must be pretty um, proud of what he accomplished. He was, uh, uh, even still, has quite a strong following.
4: Oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. It's like, uh, it's amazing, it's actually amazing.
2: Do you listen to his music?
4: Yeah, I have everything that he's ever done.
2: Kay packed up the Volkswagen and moved with her young son to California soon after her husband died. He was about 13 years old when a stranger arrived at the house.
4: He was big, man. That was the one thing that I always remembered. He was very big, um, bodybuilder type, um, but not overly excessive, but still... um, And he was very calm. Um, The way that he came across to me and the way that he always dealt with me was in a very calm manner. Very controlled, very calm, very um, matter-of-fact, well-spoken, and uh, yeah.
2: Was he a warm person?
4: You know, I'm sure he had his abrupt or aggressive... Side, but with me, it was never like that.
2: Daryl told me he first learned Lester's real name and identity about two weeks after he arrived.
4: My mom introduced him as family, but didn't go into it and elaborate. So then she told me, she told me what he had done, who he really was, that he was family.
2: And she told you what he had done, like, for real what he had done? Or or a watered-down version? No,
4: if she told me exactly what he had done and got put in prison for. And for how long he had been there, and that he escaped, and how he escaped.
2: I asked Daryl if he knew anything about how Lester got from Ohio to his mother's house.
4: I can't imagine, man. <laughs> it would have had to been underground, as far as I could tell. It's like... How the hell does somebody do that? Paranoid constantly? I mean, you'd worry about who you talk to, who they are, where they're coming from, who's behind you, what's in front of you. It's like, geez, I wouldn't want to live like that. I couldn't imagine that.
2: And what was it? Did did you how did he handle all of that? Could you get a sense of how it how it weighed on him, or if it weighed on him at all? You know,
4: I think that he was probably used to it in a way because of his self-control that he gained, I think, through time in prison. <laughs> um, I think that that self-control then kind of came over, across in, in staying free.
2: I also asked Daryl what his life was like during that time. And he said Lester was not a monster to him.
4: I knew what type of person he was supposed to be or portrayed to be, but I tend to take people at what I see and not what I'm told or hear. I listen, of course, I hear, but he saw me as family. He saw me as a as a as a he saw me as a part of family that he could trust, I guess. He saw me as family that he wanted to be part of and give something to in raising some type of fundamental foundation of, uh, of ethic. Okay. Maybe because he did what he did, he felt that he needed or wanted to instill something in me to make sure that, you know, somehow or another, Indirectly or directly, I didn't go but, that way. But you,
2: you know? but you think from his standpoint he felt like he was a father to you that he was trying to play that role for you? No,
4: he wasn't he never tried to play father. He tried to play mentor would be a better word for mm. it.
2: Are there things specific things you remember when he let his hair down? Was there music he liked or a favorite food or a place a thing to eat or a thing to do? All of
4: it, man. All of it. I mean, you know, we, we would he would share music, he would share stories, he would share books, even though I didn't read anything that didn't have anything to do with martial arts or architecture. Um, you know, he would share artistic ideas and, and things. He would share, you know, just different ways of doing things. He would share things with martial arts. He would share just things about life in general, you know. For me, he was a mentor, he was a teacher. He was a philosopher, he was an artist, Uh, he was a martial artist, he was uh, a friend, and uh, I mean, that's that's what I got out of our entire relationship.
2: Daryl didn't go into the events that prompted Lester to leave, but said he exited without warning or fanfare.
4: I don't know what the situation was but I do know that him and my mom had a conversation about it and there was something that I believe at that time after a certain amount of time my mom was no longer willing to have us in that situation Um, and it was amicable and he left how he even left, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, I, would, I got up, I went to school. I said later, and they, I come home and they, my mom tells me that he's gone. Yeah, he left some stuff that he wanted me to have. He told my mom to share some stuff with me that she did. And you know, I was cool. I, it was it was—it was not that big a deal because it was expected anyway, because I knew what the hell he had done and I knew it wasn't gonna be long. He, he can't stay any one place very long. So and it, it was just a matter of time before he would leave anyway. so I got you know what everything he wanted to give out of that relationship I got as much as I could and when he was gone, I was okay because I remembered what he taught me.
2: Do you remember some of the things specifically that he left for you?
4: Uh, it was just like books and and art supplies and just some of the stuff that he had that you know were were not valuable but But, I mean, in his situation, it was valuable to him.
2: Daryl told me that was the last time he or his mom saw or spoke with Lester. And after he left, that was it? Or do you think there were periods of time where your mom may have heard from him?
4: I don't think so. I had never heard of anything. My mom and I were, were, I mean, my mom was very honest with me. Um, She didn't hide things from me. Um, That's how she raised me. Um, So if he would have contacted her, she would have told me. I would have known about it.
2: Daryl said he's as astonished as everyone else about how Lester escaped from the Ohio penitentiary.
4: And I'm like, well, damn, that was kind of stupid of them to give somebody like that a furlough. Who gives a if they're a good convict? Good for you. You're in a controlled environment where you're told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, who to do it with, and anything else is not happening. So, yeah, of course, he's a great guy there. Why would you give somebody like that a furlough, man? What do you think he's going to do? He's going to disappear? Oh, no, he's going to go back to that, what, three-by-six cage that he's in? Give me a break. Who the hell wouldn't do what he did?
2: He figures Lester is probably dead. But if he's still alive, he won't ever be caught. If you were looking for Lester now, what do you think happened to him? Where did he go? What did he do? What would be your guess as to what was next for him?
4: dude if he's alive i'm I would be surprised as hell. I mean, come on, you know it's like with his with his personality and his you know his just physical stature and his, he had to end up getting in some kind of trouble with somebody somewhere. You're looking for this dude and he's been gone for what? 40 years. And it's like, you haven't found him yet. What the hell makes you think you're going to find him?
2: What he said next, right before we ended our interview was jarring because it was so unexpected. It's a moment that I think perfectly captures the challenge that law enforcement has faced with those few people close to Lester over his long lifetime. These people have chosen not to focus on the gravity of his crime, whether out of fear, loyalty, or sometimes love. And if he was listening to this, if he was still alive in the unlikely event, and he was listening to this, what would you... Um... What would you want him to hear you say? What's up?
4: (laughs) Damn. (laughs) That's it, man. I mean, you know, it's like, wow. I just don't believe it. You know, but it is, apparently it's true. And I mean, hey, I I, I wouldn't know what to say, to be honest with you, other than that.
2: Talk to him right now.
4: I mean, you know, like I said, I'd say, hey, what's up? How you doing? You know, I I, I know life's probably been hard, but, you know, I hope it's been okay. Um, Obviously, you're still out because they're still contacting me about you. (laughs) So it's like, you know, dude. Wow.
0: Next time, Lester's family tries to keep a united front
8: you come back and try to talk to my dad, he's not going to have anything to say.
4: Just wanted to let you know that I wouldn't bother calling my dad because he ain't going to give me shit.
0: But there is someone from Lester's past who wants to help the Marshals, and we're about to meet him.
5: I want justice to be done. <laughs>
0: We've compiled photos of Lester Eubanks, including an age progression sketch showing what the U.S. Marshals believe he may look like today on abcnews.com slash this man. You can also find a lot of additional content on the case there, and we'll be updating the page as news warrants. If you have seen Lester Eubanks or have any information about his whereabouts, you can provide your tip directly to the U.S. Marshals at one 866 Four Wanted That's one 4926833 If you haven't already subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and a review Have You Seen This Man is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio Written and reported by Senior Investigative Producer Matthew Mosk Additional reporting by Producer Alex Hosenball and Associate Producer Jin Sol Jung Production by Suzy Liu Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, and Stacia Dashishku. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects. Chris Vlasto is Senior Executive Producer. I'm Sunny Hostin.
8: As in previous campaigns, it's